Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 20. I will be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. A skateboard and an old sock. Those were key parts of big feast at my house when I was growing up. A skateboard and a dirty, well, not so dirty. It was dirty by the end, but an old sock. What a part of feast at your house. What happens when a lot of people are coming over to your house? We could spend a lot of time probably sharing stories about what happens when a lot of people are coming to your house. I love my parents. My parents are extremely clean people. I didn't know this growing up. I realized it later on. When we visit my parents, we don't attempt to help them clean anything. After visiting my parents, who both had surgery, I attempted to load the dishwasher only to have my dad unload the entire dishwasher and reload it the right way. So when Thanksgiving was happening at our house, when Christmas dinner was happening at our house, there was major cleaning in an already clean house that needed to happen. We didn't just clean the normal things. We didn't just clean the places where people were going to be. We cleaned all the places people possibly could be. Closets were organized. Every bathroom was cleaned. And everything was dusted. No, not just the surfaces, not just the bookshelves. Ah, a skateboard and an old sock. Why? Because all of the baseboards needed to be dusted. I mean, heavens forbid... Uncle so-and-so come over and see dust on the baseboards. He might turn around and leave. And so I devised a plan. I would go to the garage, get my skateboard, lie on my belly, spray the furniture polish on that sock, and scoot around the entire house dusting baseboards. We come to what I think you could arguably say is the biggest meal in the Gospel of Luke. I say that because as we just read, we heard Jesus say that he has earnestly desired to have this meal with his disciples. So what does a big meal look like at your house? What an incredible thing as we've walked through with uh, Luke as he records these meals with Jesus and now we come to this meal, this meal that he's desired to have, this meal that has so much intensity with it. I have a confession to make that, that when Justin asked me about preaching last Sunday and this Sunday, I was excited about preaching on wee little Zacchaeus. Maybe subconsciously I was excited about my first solo at Baraka. 
For those of you who had to go back and listen to that audio recording, I apologize deeply. I'm sorry. Um, there is therapy for that kind of stuff. Um, but this passage, I wasn't so sure about, but the, the more I have spent time here, oh my goodness, there is no way we will plumb the depths of the wonder and the beauty that is here. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see, first of all, the importance of remembering. And then I want us to see just three things that I think this passage calls us to remember. Not just this passage, but this table calls us to remember, and then we will celebrate around the table. Right at the heart of this passage is this command, do this in remembrance of me, verse 19, the end of verse 19. Remembering is such an important thing in Scripture. Over and over again, God's people are called to remember, and remembering is an amazing gift that God has given to you and me. Other parts of God's creation can remember, but I think God has uniquely made his image bearers with the ability to remember. And here's the thing about remembering, and here's what I want to remind us of this morning or call us to this morning, is that biblical remembering is not just a mental exercise. Biblical remembering is holistic. What I mean by that is to say that biblical remembering is intended to draw in all that we are as people. Not just our minds, but our bodies. Everything that we are is to be drawn into remembering. Remembering is a huge part of relationships, right? I mean, if you don't believe me, did you not see the Adam Sandler movie, 50 First Dates? If you can't remember something, how do you grow in relationship? How does that work? No, remembering is incredibly important. And so as we walk through Scripture... We find God intentionally giving signs and moments and things so that his people remember. After the flood, what does God give? A rainbow. Why? So that we would remember his promise never to flood the entire world again. The Passover passage that we read in Exodus 12, what are they told to do? Do this over and over and over again. Why? So you will remember this great deliverance I've provided for you. When they cross the river Jordan, at a very inconvenient moment, I mean, just think about it, right? I mean, this is not the moment to stop. But God says, no, stop. You pick 12 men. You take stones out of the middle of that Jordan. And you set them up. Why? So that when you see them and when future generations see them, they'll ask, what is this? And you can remember what I've done. In fact, what do we find out at the beginning of Judges? In Judges chapter 2, verse 10. What do we hear? What does scripture tell us? A generation was raised up that what? Forgot. They didn't know the works of the Lord. And if you want to see how that goes, well, this afternoon you can read the book of Judges. Biblical remembering is not pretending. Okay, let's just clear that up. Because we have to be honest with ourselves. <laughs> Some of our remembering is basically pretending. Yeah, I remember when I was a great football player. Oh, really? Yeah, I remember that amazing family vacation we had. <laughs> right. Sometimes our picture albums from our family vacations are more um, the vacation we wish we had than the one we actually had. We can look back on the past with rose-colored glasses. That is not biblical remembering. God does not call us to remember something fictitiously, to pretend that life was better than it actually was in that moment. No, he calls us to realistic remembering. But it's also not just a mental exercise. Did you notice that all of these things engage the body? From seeing a rainbow in the sky to Passover meal? I mean, how fully involved was, was all the parts of those, those Israelites as they were there that evening? They're smelling, they're tasting, they're touching, they're hearing. They're even dressed a certain way. And of course, their souls aren't disconnected from any of this because they're placing faith, faith that this blood put over the doorpost would spare their firstborn. Biblical remembering is whole-bodied remembering. And all throughout Scripture, we are called to whole-body remembering. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103, this is how David starts. What does David do? He's talking to his soul. And he says, listen, we're going to bless the Lord. And we are not going to forget any of his benefits. That's biblical remembering. 
It's not just, hey, we're going to sit here and we're going to rehearse some facts in our head and it's going to be very stoic. No, it's full-bodied. And that's what we see here. Jesus, as he implements and institutes this table, it's a full-bodied experience. Words are spoken. Bread is handled, broken, tasted, smelled. It's full-bodied involvement. So let me just remind you of this this morning, that your body is not a hindrance to your relationship with God. If remembering is part of relationship and an, an important part of relationship and God all throughout Scripture calls His people to engage with Him in remembering and uses their bodies to do that, then listen to me this morning. No matter how much you like or dislike your body, it is an integral part of your relationship with God. I think it's important. Young people, listen to me. Right? You're here this morning and you're thinking, I wanted a different nose, God. I wanted different color eyes. I wanted a different waistline. I wanted to be able to find my abs. They're insulated in there somewhere. I don't know. Right? I wanted different hair. Young people, we can, you can be convinced that, that your body is just some, some thing that you doll up, paint up, beat into a certain shape, size, and then take pictures of and post on social media for the consumption of others. But that's not the primary reason God gave you a body. God understands that zits are gross and awkward. He understands what it is to have a body, and he gave you your body. And one of the primary reasons he did is for you to engage him in relationship. So what if we swing to the other end of things? To the group that's no longer worried about zits and posting things on social media, but rather has long conversations uh, about the different types of medications they're taking. Whose weeks are predominantly divided up by doctor's visits. As your body breaks down, remember, remember that that body that God gave you is an integral part of you engaging in your relationship with Him. We are called to full body remembering. It's an incredible thing. And did you notice in this passage, and we're going to come back to this multiple times, but Jesus himself even says in verse 16, I tell you I will not eat of it again, this Passover meal, I won't eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, one of the things that that means is that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to, in the fullness of the kingdom, going to have a body. And when we read about this meal, which we'll end this whole series with, this marriage supper of the Lamb that I think Jesus is alluding to here, if you and I are going to eat the marriage supper of the Lamb, what does that mean you and I will have? bodies. Your body and who you are as a person is not a hindrance to your relationship with God. Rather, is an integral part of that relationship. And one of the key parts of that is remembering, and God calls us into holistic, full-bodied and soul remembering and engagement in relationship with God. I think that's great, because I can do that no matter the shape, size, fitness of my body. Well, God calls us to remember it's incredibly important. And like I said, I want to draw our attention now to just three things in this passage that I think God calls us to remember. This holistic remembering, what are we supposed to remember? The first thing I would say is this. We're supposed to remember who's in control. We're supposed to remember who is in control. Luke makes it abundantly clear that this meal does not happen by accident. Nothing here happens by accident. All of this has been planned by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, last week we referenced Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where, where if you look back, Jesus is the one who said, okay, it's time to go to Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. So he's the one that's decided they're marching this way. He knows what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He mentions it multiple times to his disciples. The final time he repeats it in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. He knows that he's going to suffer and to die. If we had the time, we could go back and we could read Luke chapter 19 in the triumphal entry. And you'll see that Jesus is 
orchestrating all of these events in just the right way. He enters into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, and then day by day, he's coming back to the city, he's sitting in that temple, and he's teaching. And in only the way that Jesus can, he's, he's teaching, he's being gracious, and at the same time, he is appropriately provoking the religious leaders as they come and ask him questions. He answers with wisdom and authority to the place where no one dares ask him a question anymore. And that's where we start our passage, right? Verse 1 tells us that as the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes, what happens? We find the chief priests and the scribes, they are seeking a way to put Jesus to death. And the only reason they haven't yet is because of the people. Well, but then this interesting note comes that is a little maybe concerning to us. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas. Judas' heart has already been turning away. And at this moment now, Satan enters in. Now, we could ask a lot of questions about what in the world, why is Satan entering in? But here's what I will say. I can almost guarantee you that if Satan could have entered into Judas long before now, he would have. Why didn't he? Because it wasn't time. This is the time. Now's the moment. So what happens? Satan enters into Judas. Judas says, I will go betray Jesus. Well, I mean, these scribes and, 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 and chief priests, I mean, they, they, could, they couldn't have asked for a better deal. You mean one of Jesus' own? Oh, he's going to tell, tell us the moment that Jesus is alone? And then we can grab him, apart from the crowd. So they were glad they come to an agreement. But Jesus is in control of all of this. In fact, we even have this weird, did you notice this, this whole like spy movie scene with Peter and John? Jesus says, go prepare the Passover meal. Now, because Passover was one of the feasts where you had to come to Jerusalem to have it, Jerusalem was swelling. I mean, the population was swelling. And one of the biggest concerns, while there were other things you had to do to prepare the Passover meal, one of the biggest concerns would be what Peter and John asked. Where are we going to have it? And Jesus does not shoot them a text with a GPS location. He doesn't give them an address. Did you notice what he does? It is. It's, it's like some kind of James Bond movie. You'll go in town. You see a guy carrying a jar. You follow that guy. Right? Why does he do all of that? Well, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but I think part of it is because he already knows what's going on in Judas. And he wants this meal to happen. So he doesn't announce to everyone where the meal is going to take place. And said, said he says to Peter and John, you're going to go, you're going to see this guy carrying a water jar, which apparently guys didn't carry water jars. That's just what I've read. And so it would have been obvious. They follow that guy. They go, they get to the master's house, and boom, it's all set up. Now, did, God, did Jesus arrange that ahead of time? We don't know. But it seems clear that, again, he's orchestrating all of these things because he's so intent on having this meal. And only once he's had this meal and then leaves and goes to the garden is the opportunity opened up for Judas to betray Jesus. He's in full control of all of this. But it's not just this moment that he's in control of. It's not just now that he's in control. A little after the passage that we had read in verse 22, Jesus is talking about the one who's going to betray him. And he says this in verse 22 of chapter 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God is in control of this whole thing. God is in control of the whole story of redemption. From the garden, in the moment that Adam and Eve fall into sin, and, and God promises amidst the curse that he is, going to, he is going to provide a seed from Eve who is going to crush that serpent's head, even though that serpent will strike the heel of that one. He's in control through Mount Sinai. He's in control through the promised land. He's in control of the moment of Christ coming, and he's in control in this moment. All of this is happening under the control of God. And not only that, it's not just that he was in control and he is in control now, but he's in control in the future. Again, we looked at this already in verse 16 and, and in verse 17 or 17 and 18, but Jesus makes clear, listen, in just a little bit, it's going to seem like I'm not in control. 
In just a little bit, something's going to happen. And you, my disciples, you're going to question whether I'm in control because I'm going to suffer. But listen to me, I'm telling you something. This meal that we're having now, I am not going to have this again until the fullness of the kingdom of God has come. This wine that we're drinking, let me tell you something. I am not going to drink it again until I drink it in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. It's going to seem like everything is going to go sideways and you're going to question, you're going to doubt. Right? These, these disciples were getting ready to doubt probably more than they ever had in their entire lives. They think in this moment they're, they're ready. They're, they think they're committed. They think that their faith is so strong they'll go with Jesus to be arrested and even to the grave. And Jesus says, no, you, you're, you're about to question everything. But listen to me. I am in control. I've been in control of everything up to this moment. I'm in control of this moment. And I am in control and I will bring about the kingdom. It's incredible. God is in control. And so later on, as we, we studied 1 Corinthians together as a church family, and we looked at the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where, where the Apostle Paul lays out these instructions by Christ, and he includes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until He comes. Because He's coming, because He's still in control. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of God's control. He was in control that night He instituted it there in Egypt. Despite the power of Pharaoh, it was God who was in control. And He was in control this night that He institutes this Last Supper with His disciples. He was in control. And He's in control now and He will be in control and we will see it with greater clarity than ever before when we join in in the marriage supper of the Lamb all of those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's control is complete, but right here in this passage is something incredibly important. And you know this, brothers and sisters. God's full control does not mean a lack of suffering. And it does not mean a lack of hardship. Jesus is in full control, and what does He say? He says, I am going to suffer. God has planned this meal. He's planned every detail of it. And He's planned that He will suffer and He will die. The one who's in full control in this situation is the one who is orchestrating all things to lay down His life. What's amazing to me, I, well, that's amazing in and of itself. But what's amazing to me is that while Jesus is in full control, coming, being born, living life, a perfect life, moving all of this towards this moment, this hour, this purpose for which He came, now moving everything towards this moment of His death, willing to offer up His life, in full control, all of that seems like enough to me. All of that seems like enough care that the one who could change it doesn't but moves it towards this purpose. But yet tucked in the middle of this is this incredible care of God for His disciples. As I mentioned, Jesus knew His disciples were about to question everything. I might ask you this morning, I don't know where you find yourself. Maybe today you're saying, I am more confident in God than I've ever been. I love God more than I ever have in my life. Praise God for that. I think the disciples were there at that point in this moment, but Jesus is telling them, you have no idea what's going to come. I know what's going to come. And you are going to question. You're going to doubt. And, and later on, you'll see it if you, if you continue to look in chapter 22, down at verse 31, he looks to Simon. Bold, brash, confident Simon, Peter. And he knows what's going to happen with Peter. He knows Peter's going to deny him. And so this, this Jesus who's in full control, who understands that that control involves suffering, not just for him, but for his disciples, doesn't look at Peter and say, Peter, you better trust me and you better suck it up. Because I'm in control. Don't you doubt me. What does he say? 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded you that he might sift you like we, but what? I, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This, this God who is in full control is laying down his life and yet even as he lays down his life, understands that his control and the suffering and the questioning and the doubts that it brings, it's not too small for him. He cares for Simon. He says, Simon, I've prayed for you. I've prayed that your faith won't fail. This morning, we need to be reminded that God is in total control. And I don't know how that hits you. Some of you this morning are going, God's in control, and you're like, yes, he's in control, and I'm experiencing his blessing in my life, and I'm so thankful he's in control because all of these things are happening, and I see God's hand working, and it's amazing, and I'm rejoicing, and praise God for that. And as you come to this table, you come blessing God and thanking him for his, his hand of, of abundance that's upon you, and some of you hear God's in control, and you go, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're doing, God, and I don't know what, I don't know when you're going to hear my cries. You may feel like Peter would feel, where if someone pressed you, you might find yourself ready to say, I don't know him. I tell you, I don't know that man. But know this that the same God who is in control intercedes for you. I don't think what Jesus does here for Peter is a one-off thing. He is in control. He has suffered. He understands. So we remember with whole-bodied remembrance that God is in control. Second, we remember who is central. We remember who is central. One pastor put it this way, and I thought it was brilliant, so I'm just going to steal it. I want you to imagine Thanksgiving. I don't know where you do Thanksgiving, but you're there, Thanksgiving, right? Big meal, you're eating, your stomach's way past full, you're still eating, right? That's one of the things you get to do on Thanksgiving. And I don't know what you do at your house for Thanksgiving. I don't know if you go, like you have a Thanksgiving tree or you go around and you share things you're thankful for or that kind of thing. Or maybe you just eat and then you watch football and pass out, whatever. But I want you to imagine somewhere in there that while all of the family is together, somebody, one of your family members, and I know what's going to happen in this illustration. Immediately you're going to be stuck figuring out which family member would do this, okay? But just stick with me, all right? You are there, and one of the family members, it comes their time to share, and they say, I'm so glad to have this opportunity. I've been waiting for this meal with you all. Because here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that all of this is about me. And if that's not enough, here's what, I, here's what you need to get. You need to grasp this. Not only this meal is about me. Get this. All Thanksgivings have been about me. Now I know in that moment, your love and affection for that family member would abound. And you would want to hug them and agree with them and thank them for honoring you with their presence since this day, this feast, is about them and has always been about them. Listen, folks, major plot twist. Darth Vader is Luke's father. What? Sorry if I ruined that. There are kids in here. Oh, well. What does Jesus do in this meal? Don't miss it for its familiarity to you. Jesus sits with his disciples, observes the Passover, and then says to them, as he takes the bread and breaks it and hands it to them, he says to them, this is all about me. And as he gives them that cup, he says to them, this is all about me. And it's not just this meal that's about me. Every Passover has been about me. It's all about me. Talk about audacious. 
Jesus says what the writer of Hebrews would later on go and put into a letter for us. That Jesus is better than all of it. Greater than Moses. Greater than all of the priests. Greater than all of the angels. All of this is about Him. From the first Passover lamb and all that were slaughtered throughout all of the history of Israel downward, it was all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. He's the centerpiece. As we read through the Old Testament, we do not read the part of the Bible that, as it were, is is pre-Jesus. It's not the first season where the main character doesn't show up, and then the second season you're like, oh, wow, there he is. No, if you think that's the way the Bible works, you need to go back and rewatch the first season. Jesus is there. He's in the Old Testament. It's all pointing to him. It's screaming about him. In fact, the next meal that we will look at is the meal that Jesus has, a very brief meal, by the way, that Jesus has with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus where he he tells them, he shows them that the Old Testament is talking about him. It's pointing to him. Now, why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons that it matters is because you and I daily become confused and we think that we are the lead character in the play of our lives. We become convinced that our life is primarily about us and Jesus is someone we've invited on stage to be a part of the story that's primarily about us. It's not. It's not. It's about Him. It's all about Him. He alone deserves center stage. He alone is worthy of that glory. And our lives only fit as we understand them with Jesus at the center. I mean, if it wasn't enough that Jesus basically takes Passover and takes this meal way more significant than Thanksgiving for us, by the way, and says, it's all been about me. Did you notice what he says as he hands out the cup in verse 20? If that wasn't audacious enough, Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I not only... And the center of this meal and all Passover meals before this one, here's the deal. When I shed my blood, I bring an end to the Mosaic Covenant. And I bring in the New Covenant. Not the fullness of it. Things we're still waiting to see. But it is all pointing to me and my perfect life, my body offered up and broken and my blood shed brings an end to the Mosaic Covenant under which Israel had lived since Mount Sinai. There will be no more human priests. There will be no more other sacrifices for sin. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will pour put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What would happen on that day of Pentecost? The spirit of God would be poured out. Not just on a priest or on a king. No, it would be poured out on all who had placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him. He's center stage. So I want you to picture a musical. Imagine a musical where every actor or actress cites every line, recites every line as if they were the lead star in the musical. They try and say it louder. They're fighting to get to center stage every time. They want to be in the spotlight. Imagine if everyone in the chorus line is singing like it's their solo, trying to sing bigger and louder and outdo everyone else around them. You want to see that musical? Some of you are like, I don't want to watch a musical anyways. It would be total chaos and confusion. Instead of working with people, they're competing, and it becomes an absolute mess. Folks, this is a picture of what many of our lives look like. Because we find, we look at people around us and we think of them as competition for the spotlight. We don't understand, or we think they don't understand, that this is our show. We're the star. We say it jokingly, but on the inside, sometimes we honestly think that life would be a lot better if everyone would realize that they're in my movie. 
But it's not about us. It's about Christ. It all points to him. He's center stage. He is the only one who can hold center stage in the play of redemption. And when we remember that, it is all about Christ. He alone is supremely worthy. Things begin to come into the right perspective. Now, let me add this, because this, this, is, this is crazy. When you remember that Christ is the only one who's worthy to be center stage, when you understand what he's doing with this Passover meal, and then you see these two little words that he says, he says, all of this is about me. I have all of this authority. I'm worthy of all of this glory. But then he says, this is my body broken, what? For you. For you. For you. So the one who's worthy of all glory, the one who the whole Old Testament is pointing to, the one who all of those, those Passover lambs have been pointing to, the one who's worthy of all glory doesn't say, finally, everybody look at me, serve me, bow down to me. Instead, what does he say? This is my body, broken for you. In a little bit, the disciples will be arguing in verse 24 of this same chapter over who's the greatest. And Jesus says in the midst of that, I didn't come as one who reclines at the table. I came as one who serves. Why? Because the one who reclines at table is the greater than the one who serves. But I have among you as the one who serves. The one who's deserving of all glory and all honor, the one who's made clear this is all about me is the one who's going to lay down his life. And he says to his disciples, it is for you. It's for you. It's absolutely incredible. It's incredible. And it's the way it has to be. Do you understand that this morning? Do you understand this is the only way redemption happens? Do you understand that if Jesus said, I'm the center of it all, now work really hard to be my friend, none of us would make it. Do you understand if, if he, even if God revealed himself in Christ and then said, now you see, you've beheld the glory of God in me, God in the flesh, now work really hard to get to me, none of us could do it. None of us can ascend. This is what John says. None of us could ascend. So what had to happen? God had to descend. He has to come to us. He has to be offered to us because we have nothing to offer him. Nothing. But here's the message of the gospel. Here's the good news that's not just good news the day we get saved. It is good news every day of our lives. It's what we sang this morning. That when we were lost, Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm over here. Come over here. No, He came to me. He sought me. He found me. He is for me and He's for you. And that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at the moment of salvation. Jesus doesn't say, I went and found you and I dumped you back in the sheep pen. Stay there. No, He's for you and He's for you and He's for you. Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul's trying to get these believers in Rome to understand. What then shall we say to these things? If God is what? For us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who does what? Who indeed is interceding for us. For us. Friends, if you think that God and Christ was only for you to the point of salvation, I offer to you Romans 8. I offer to you Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Consequently, He is able to save us to the uttermost those who draw near to Him, those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to what? Make intercession for them. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, My little children, I have written these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. If there is a single moment in your life, believer, where Jesus stops being for you, you are doomed. 
If there's a single moment where God is not pursuing you, you will not be pursuing Him. You are doomed. But this is the message of the Gospel. That the one who deserved to be center stage, the one deserving of all glory, the one deserving of all honor, humbled Himself and pursued us. It's the only way we could get to Him is for Him to come to us. Praise God. So let me ask you this, men. We've had weddings here, thus these nice decorations. I didn't pick these out, by the way. We've had weddings lately, and we've heard a passage that many of us know, Ephesians chapter 5 read, that talks about the fact that we as husbands have the duty to lay down our lives for our wives. So let me ask you this. Does your wife know that you're for her? Like Christ makes so vividly clear he is for you. Were you for her at that moment when you recited those vows and since then it's grown cold? As the things that were so charming about her on that day you married her have become the very things that annoy you to no end? Even if you're convinced right now that you ought to be center stage in your home, do you understand that Christ says, I I do deserve to be center stage, not just in your home, but in all of history? It's all about me, and here's what I am. I am not one who reclines at the table and says, hey, hey, bring me something to eat. No, I am among you as one who serves. That's what you and I, men, are called to in our marriages. Over and over again, to serve, to serve. Does your wife know that you're for her? Let me ask you another penetrating question. Do your buddies at work know that you're for your wife? Do your friends at the gym know that you're for her? Do the other women at the gym wearing full spandex outfits know that you're for your wife? Your eyes are for your wife? Does your internet history know that you're for your wife? What about the buddies on the golf course in the way you talk about her? Do they know you're for her? This is our Lord Jesus Christ, center of all things. And what does he say? This is for you, for you. Lastly and quickly, we need to remember that it's not me or not, it's, it's we, not me. We need to remember it's we, not me. When we would do youth retreats out in the villages in Senegal, it was incredibly common to share one cup for the entire day for drinking water. Water would be carted in, donkey cart, and a bucket would scoop out some water. It would sit in the little concrete church building where we would be meeting. And if you wanted to drink a water, there'd be a cup in there. You'd scoop out, you'd drink some water, next person do the same thing. So it was common to share a cup. I kind of had that same idea, but as I've studied this passage, I came to realize that sharing the same cup was not a common thing. Jesus is very intentional in the sharing of this cup. He's very intentional in the bread, the one piece of bread that's being broken and given out. He wants them to understand some very important things. I think, one, he's making very clear there's only one Lamb of God. There is only one Savior. There is only one way and truth in life, and it's Jesus Christ. But I think he's also wanting to point them to something. He wants them to understand that they are not just saved out of sin, but they are saved and placed into a family. They are not just saved out of the kingdom of darkness so that they can roam as lone rangers, but they are placed into the kingdom of light. And in that kingdom, there are more people than just you and me. They had no idea, these these apostles had no idea what was going to happen. How how in the the, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, this was going to blow wide open. And how many people would come flooding in by the grace of God into the kingdom. And they would all be a part. They would share this meal that Jesus is instituting with men, with women, old, young, rich, poor, of their ethnicity and others because God would throw open the doors and many would come in 
And this was not just about them having their solo, independent, private relationship with Jesus. Now, I know the moment I say that, it makes us choke a little bit. I have beat this drum before, and some of you may be tired of me beating this drum. But I am constantly concerned about the dogged individualism, the autonomy, the avid independence of American culture, and the way that it has permeated the church. In our minds, we can see our relationship with Christ as primarily a personal relationship. It's me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. I think Chad Bird makes an astute observation when he says that word personal many times doesn't just mean personal, it means private. That the Christian life is primarily a private life and so it doesn't surprise us when we read or sing the refrain of that American hymn in the garden. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no other has ever known. Really? I don't think so. Our life in Christ is a life as part of a body. We are taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light. We are put into a family. We are made part of the body of Christ. This table points to that. We share the same cup and the same bread. We are saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same God and Father. We have the same Holy Spirit. So Paul in Romans says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and listen to this, and individual members of one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. How do you consider your life with Christ? Part of the reason when we, when we have communion here at Baraka, we say we're going to hold the cup, we're going to hold the bread and take it all together is to point to this very thing. And part of the reason we don't all go to our own separate rooms so we can have our little experience with Jesus is so that we can watch one another do this and remember, I am in Christ with that person. I am in Christ with that person. Jesus is my Savior and He is theirs. Yes, it is true. Christ calls us individually. These disciples He had called individually. That's not an argument. Yes, are there, are, are there, are there ways in which Christ relates to me as an individual? Yes. But do I have some exclusive private relationship with Jesus Christ that's all mine and nobody else's? Do you think that way? Do you view your relationship with Christ that way? How do you think when you come into the assembly? Do you think here are people who I'm just sitting next to because they have their private thing with Jesus and I have my private thing with Jesus? We've been to those social events, right? Where you both know the same person but you don't know each other and it's a little weird and all you know to do is share stories about the same person that you know and that runs out after a while and then there's the odd silence because you're not really connected. You're not really related. You have this weird intersection. And when that person leaves the room, you're like, ah. Is that what church is supposed to be like? Life in community is challenging. That's obvious. But it's rich. And it's what we're called to. I'll tell you this. Our culture is built and encourages and celebrates independence. It makes it much easier to say, I could just do this on my own than to say, no, I'm going to do this in community. I'm going to do this with others. Here's one of the other dangers, I think, is that cutting off community is a slow-working poison. 
to slowly cut off your church family, to distance yourself from from the community of Christ, it's not like immediately you're going to notice it and and, and your relationship with Christ is going to wither away, but I'm telling you, it's a poison. And over days, weeks, and months, it may take a while, but it'll happen. And once you notice the problem, the damage is already done. Relationships have suffered. You're suspicious of others. And not only that, you've infected others by your actions and your words as you've spoken harshly about the body of Christ. Beloved, we're saved. It's not me, it's we. We are saved in to community. Well, there's much more that we could say about this passage. There's much more that comes to us as we look at this, but, but remember this morning as we prepare to come to this table that God calls us to holistic remembering. There's a reason that we're going to, to take and to touch and to taste. And remember what he tells us, that he is in control, that Jesus Christ is the center, and that as we take this in community together, that it's not about me, it's about us. It's about us united in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have this opportunity now to come to this table. And I pray, Father, for those who may be here who have heard all of this and they're going, I don't, I don't know that I'm in Christ. I don't, I don't understand what, what all of this represents. Lord, I pray I pray that you'll use your word to speak to them and that they'll continue to ask questions and that you might help them to understand the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that this table preaches. And I pray for us now as we come to this table that having heard this passage, we won't think that this is some kind of uh, boring end to it, but, but rather it would draw us in and it would bring, it would bring life to the very things that we've read about. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.